We live in confusing times, in a divided world. Political fervor and anxiety are at an all-time high. With every presidential election cycle in recent memory touted as the most important election of our lifetimes. Political opinions land like hand grenades at family dinner tables and at the uh, employee lounge at work and on our social media feeds. There's likely no topic in American life and discourse that's more polarizing than the topic of race and racism. And given the racial history of the United States, this should not be surprising. The wounds are deep, the cures are complex and uncomfortable. Recent episodes of violence perpetrated against black Americans, coupled with a frequent reluctance or slowness to bring criminal charges against their white attackers, have struck such a nerve in American society that in many places, even while the rioters' flames have been mostly put out, the fires of anger and the spirit of revolution rage on. If the burning cities and toppling memorial statues are any indication, the threadbare fabric of our clumsily negotiated peace appears to be coming apart at the seams. But these issues of racial division and violence swirl in the air around us, along with a dozen other questions about righteousness and justice, about identity and freedom, about oppression and liberation. In a secular society, of course, the answers to these questions are vastly disparate from one another as everyone looks through their unique worldview lenses in an attempt to make sense of the chaos surrounding us. So, what is a Christian to do? Or better, what is the church to do? Who are God's people to be? in the midst of this brokenness and confusion. The series of sermons I'm beginning today will attempt to provide answers to some of these questions from the Word of God. Given the fraught nature of these topics uh, and the strong opinions and heightened emotions that tend to accompany them, I would be an utter fool to stand in front of you armed with only my opinions. You don't need my opinions. The world doesn't need my opinions. So I hope to point you to and only to the Word of God that we may together seek His wisdom and His heart in these matters. And so we're beginning a series that I'm calling Just God, Just Church. I will be unable to say in the course of this series everything that can or should be said, and I'll likely say some things in ways that can be improved upon. I also expect, if I'm being faithful to Jesus' teachings and to the law of God as revealed in the Bible, that I'll probably say something that you might find challenging or offensive or uncomfortable, as in fact Jesus himself often 
does. Pay attention to those moments throughout these conversations, throughout these messages in the next few weeks and conversations we have with one another where there are moments of tension and discomfort and where you're prone to take offense. Lean in to those tensions. Don't run away from them. The point of discomfort we feel when we hear God's word is often the very point at which God most likely wants to challenge us and change us. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We won't walk through, uh, this series will not be going through a book of the Bible. We'll be landing in particular passages of Scripture um, that I believe illustrate something of the heart of God about these issues, the issues of justice and righteousness, the issues of racial uh, reconciliation and, and harmony, issues related uh, to those topics. So today we look at a very familiar story that Jesus tells, the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. The story takes place down in verse 25 through 37. So as you get to uh, Luke 10 in your Bibles, you can look down toward uh, verse 25. Just a little bit of context uh, in the book of Luke as this story comes. Jesus and his disciples are making the uh, slow but deliberate and intentional journey to Jerusalem. At the end of chapter 9 of Luke, 9.51, we were told that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus knew that he had to go to Jerusalem in order to fulfill the plan of his Father, to be delivered up to his enemies and publicly executed on a cross. And so Jesus and his disciples have begun that journey for the last time to Jerusalem where the crucifixion will take place. And on the way uh, to Jerusalem, the, the first half of chapter 10 sees them approaching various villages and towns along the way. Uh, the first half of chapter 10 uh, Jesus sent out 72 disciples, obviously not merely the 12, the inner circle, but these are followers of Jesus. He sent them out in pairs into all the villages and towns that he would be uh, entering on the way uh, in order to preach the kingdom of God. He told, sent them into the city and told them to tell them, the kingdom of heaven has come near to you. And so these pairs of disciples are going about these cities and villages preaching the kingdom of of Christ, and they've returned uh, from uh, from those journeys with some stories of success, some stories of of victory, some stories of astonishment about the things that God did in their midst. Chapter ten actually begins with Jesus being rejected by a village of Samaritans. Samaritans being a, a distinct ethnic group from the Jews, and there was a lot of animosity and tension between Jews and Samaritans, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a few minutes. But Jesus had entered this town and they had rejected him and, and sent him away. So in the context of this uh, parable, in the context of this ministry and the rejection by the Samaritans and the various stories of ministry uh, happening in these villages and towns, uh, the, the, the story of the, the Good Samaritan comes at a very uh, interesting and important moment. 
It's in this context, as they're going into these villages, uh, that uh, a crowd, uh, likely surrounded by a crowd of curious onlookers in one of these towns on the way to Jerusalem, that a man calls out to Jesus with a question. And the exchange that follows is recorded for us in verses 25 through 37, which I will read for you now. Luke chapter 10, beginning of verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he put out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. familiar story, one with considerable insight into human nature, considerable teeth, if you will, in the challenge that Jesus offers to this lawyer who stands to question him, and who challenges, I believe, through the Spirit of God who's inspired this text and handed it down to us, challenges us, challenges his people, his church even today. I want you to notice a couple of things. Notice the question that introduces the parable. In verse 25, the the occasion for Jesus telling the story is this man who, who speaks up and asks Jesus a question. We're told that he's a lawyer. That is, he's a scribe. He's a teacher of the law the law of God. So this is a guy who's well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows them well. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is an all-important question for a person to ask. We ought to be concerned, more so than with anything else, about eternal life how we might attain the full and endless life that God provides should permeate the thinking of any sinner. What, how can I receive eternal life? This is what sinners should be asking. 
we know immediately that this is not a sincere question. The man is trying to test Jesus. He's trying to trap him. So he's not asking in good faith. I wish that he were. I wish that more people in good faith would sincerely ask, how can I receive eternal life? Because this is what Jesus' life and ministry are all about. Accomplishing, purchasing, providing eternal life to all who would turn to Him, repent of their sins, and trust in Christ. But notice, he's got a problem. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, he's looking for a ladder to climb, isn't he? What do I have to do in order to get eternal life? This is a common problem among sinners. Friends, as long as you are looking for a to-do list of righteous deeds that will earn you a standing with God, you will never receive the eternal life that God gives by sheer grace. Eternal life is not earned. It is granted by grace. The law of God, which the lawyer then sums up quite accurately, right? He quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This was one of the central sort of pieces of liturgy and worship among the the Jewish people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he quotes Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, Love the Lord your, uh, excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's very familiar with the law. And he's quoting the most salient points of it. Jesus himself uses those two commands to, as he says, sum up the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so he accurately answers the question. And the law of God stands not as a ladder for us to climb to heaven. What must I do? How many righteous things do I have to obey in order to gain eternal life? It stands as a judge against us, exposing our inability to carry it out and our desperate need for someone to buy our way in. That is what it comes down to. This lawyer didn't understand that. This lawyer did not have the humility or the recognition of his own brokenness and and limitation to humble himself and to say, I need someone to do this for me. He's looking for a ladder to climb. And so when Jesus says, do this and you will live, what he's saying is, you're not going to find this possible. You're not able to perfectly fulfill the law. And so the lawyer asks a self-justifying question. We know that because Luke tells us, Seeking to justify himself, he said, And who is my neighbor? Jesus has laid an impossible burden on him. Right? You want eternal life? Perfectly keep the law. Love God, love neighbor to the fullest extent at all times, no exceptions. The response of a sinner who recognizes his own weakness and throws himself upon Christ's mercy would be, But I can't do that, Lord. I need help. I'm doomed without your intervention. That indeed is the posture that Jesus calls us to. 
But this fella tries to convince himself that he can handle it. I can handle the task of perfect obedience if I just make the job a little smaller. Who is my neighbor? See what he's doing? If he can narrow the field of exactly who it is that he's responsible to love, then maybe, just maybe, he'll be able to carry it out. If I can get Jesus to tell me that my neighbor is somebody that fits this limited and narrow description, then the job of loving my neighbor is much easier. And so he asks this self-justifying question, who is my neighbor? Bookmark this question. We're going to come back to it after we've talked about Jesus' story. So his response to this question, who is my neighbor, is to tell a story. Just like Jesus, sometimes he answers questions with questions. Just did that. Sometimes he answers questions with parables, stories with spiritual truth wrapped up in them. For those with ears to hear, that is, the ability granted by the Spirit of God to perceive the truth there, to hear and respond. And so we see several things in this story. I want to point out to you four elements that we see in the story of this man who falls among robbers. The first thing we see is that we live in a world of violence and suffering. He starts the story by saying a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers and he was beaten and stripped and left half dead. This happens in the world in which we live. There is violence. There is suffering. There is unjust treatment of image-bearing human beings. And so the premise of the story assumes this reality. There is suffering and violence in this world because we are sinners, because the world is broken and fallen. And so here is a Jewish man headed down from Jerusalem to Jericho who is attacked needlessly, mercilessly, cruelly by robbers, stripped of his belongings and whatever things of value he had, and left for dead in a ditch. That's the context. The context of the truths of this story is the world is broken. The world is violent. The world is filled with unjust suffering. The next thing we see is the emptiness. This is uh, the, word, the way that Thabiti Anyabwile quotes it, is the emptiness of religion without love. The emptiness of religion without love. Look in verses 31 and 32. What happens is that these religious leaders go right by and don't answer the need that they see, right? They won't intervene. We see a priest this would have been a descendant of Aaron who's responsible for leading the, the worship and, and facilitating the sacrifices of, uh, among God's people in the worship of Yahweh. This is the leader, a leader in the temple worship of God. He sees the man and intentionally crosses on the other side of the road and passes right by. The next man who comes is a Levite would be someone from the tribe of Levi, not descended from Aaron, not a priest per se, but the Levites were servants in the temple. So they would have assisted the priests with the, the work of facilitating worship. So these are religious leaders. 
These are people that are in, whose job, given by God, is to facilitate the worship of God. And they can't be bothered. They intentionally pass by. They distance themselves from the man's suffering and pass right by. Now, we're not told exactly why the priest and the Levite don't stop to help him. He doesn't give us a window into their thinking or into their hearts. He just tells us the facts. They saw him and then passed by on the other side of the road. Perhaps they thought themselves too important to be inconvenienced by someone else's need. Do you? Perhaps they were on their way to an important meeting or were simply too busy to stop and help. Are we? Perhaps they thought if they were far enough away, it wasn't their responsibility, right? They passed by on the other side of the road in order to create some personal distance and thus minimize their responsibility. Do we? Jesus would have us ask these questions of ourselves, I think rather than pointing our fingers at the priest and the Levite and going, wow, these people are so messed up. These people are so selfish that they would see the suffering of this man and walk right on by. I'm glad I'm not like that. That's not what Jesus would have us do. Jesus would have us examine our hearts. What if I were in that situation? Would I do the same thing? What about situations in my life that do resemble that? Am I currently guilty making distance between myself and the suffering around me, of seeing myself as too busy or too important to take the time. Religion without love is empty, and we see that clearly in the the inaction of the priest and the Levite. Third thing we notice is a demonstration of kindness across racial and ethnic lines. In verse 33, we're introduced to this Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, you need to remember the context here between Jews and Samaritans. There was a long-standing racial tension and animosity between Jews and Samaritans. Jews regarded the Samaritans as sort of half-breeds, They're rebellious against God. They were unclean. This is how Jews regarded the Samaritans. And so, of course, the Samaritans were none too friendly in return to that attitude from the Jewish people. And so there were long, decades, centuries of tension and and animosity and division between these two ethnic groups of people. Jesus' audience would have been surprised at the very least to find the the hero of the story was a Samaritan, especially in light of the indifference displayed by the Jewish religious leaders, right? So our own sort of spiritual elite have been portrayed as indifferent and unbothered and uncaring. But meanwhile, our racial enemy, the racial other, is portrayed in the story as the, the hero, the one who acts justly toward the man who fell among robbers. This point of tension is no accident on Jesus' part. 
the compassionate man could have been another Jew, could have just said, and then another man came by and took compassion on him. The compassionate man could have been another Jew, and the basic point of the story would stand, right? Pay attention to the hurting people around you and meet the needs that you're able to meet, right? That'd be clear enough, even if the man with compassion were a Jewish man. So the fact that the hero is this racial other, this racial minority, is intended, I believe, by Jesus, both to radicalize the nature of neighbor love, what it means to love your neighbor, because that's what he's expounding on here, right? The guy has asked what I need to do to get eternal life. He's told him, love God, love neighbor. The man asked, who is my neighbor? All right, we're going to talk about that, right? It, It radicalizes the nature of neighbor love. And to draw attention to the categories, consciously or unconsciously, the categories into which we place people in our minds and hearts. To quote Thabiti one more time, he says that the lawyer was looking for a way to loosen the definition of neighbor, and instead Jesus radically expands it. Didn't get quite what he was looking for in answer to his question. So this kindness, this compassion across racial lines is not accidental. Jesus puts features it in the story to make an important point to his audience then and to his audience today, his church. Final thing that we see in the story that he tells is the sacrifice and cost of real love. So this Samaritan man takes compassion on the man who's been beaten and left for dead. Uh, But he doesn't just feel compassion. He does something about it. And what he does is costly and time-consuming. He doesn't just call 911 as he passes by. Hey, I passed a bleeding guy in the ditch. You might send an ambulance out there if you get around to it. He takes the initiative to care for this man. He spends time and money and energy on meeting his needs. He puts him on his own animal, it says, probably then having to walk beside the animal. I doubt there was room on whatever that animal was for both of them. So he probably has the the injured man sort of laying across his animal and is walking beside it, which would make his journey longer. He he heads into town, uh, a nearby town with an inn. He's there at least a day with him, taking care of him, because it says the next day is when he leaves. He goes to the innkeeper and he gives him some money. He gives him two denarii, which would be the equivalent of about two days worth of salary. In that day, of course, in an agrarian culture that it was, salaries were really largely day by day. You work a day, you eat that day. That's kind of how it worked. So he spends two days worth of his own livelihood in care of this man. And he says, If you have to pay more than that to take care of him, I will return and I will pay you whatever you need. Love will cost you. In fact, if it doesn't cost you, it's probably not love. Love is not cheap. Love is not easy. Love is not always convenient. It's hard. It takes sacrifice. It might cost us money. It cost us time, convenience. Might be uncomfortable. This is clearly what Jesus calls his people to. 
the kind of radical, costly, self-sacrificing neighbor love that he expects his people to carry out. Now, do you remember why Jesus told the story? Right? The lawyer had asked him, who is my neighbor? As a way of narrowing his definition of a neighbor and thus diminishing his personal responsibility. And so Jesus told this story. And then he asks him in verse 36, which of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And the man, presumably the lawyer, just as he answered him, rightly responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Do you see what happened here? Jesus didn't really answer his question, did he? He said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches out on this story, not to illustrate the reality of who is and isn't the neighbor that we should love. You expect the story to point out whether or not the man beat up by robbers should be regarded as a neighbor, right? In other words, am I responsible to help him? Is he my neighbor? But Jesus turns it around on him. And he identifies the neighbor in the story as the one who showed compassion on the guy in the ditch. Please don't miss the challenge for us here. Who is my neighbor is a question that we may frequently use as an excuse to diminish our responsibility relationally, socially, economically. If I can conclude that person or that group of people in need is not my neighbor, then I can dismiss their need as not my problem. It happens all the time. It happens with Christians. It happens with people who profess to be believers. What they're essentially doing is trying to narrow down the definition of who their neighbor is. Jesus' answer to this is that you're asking the wrong question. It doesn't matter who your neighbor is. It matters that you make every effort to be a neighbor to those in need. That's how he turns the tables on this question. Daryl Bach says, The issue is not who we may or may not serve, but serving where need exists. We are not to seek to limit who our neighbors might be. Rather, we are to be a neighbor to those whose needs we can meet. We can't meet every need. right? There is a reality there. There is a, a principle of moral proximity. The nearer we are to a situation, to somebody's suffering, the more culpable we are, the more responsible we are for meeting those needs and intervening in their suffering. That is a true principle. We can't meet every need that there is. I am not equally obligated to feed my child and to feed a starving child in Uganda. There is a difference to be made. There's a distinction, right? But that, if we need that sort of disclaimer to feel good about how we're obeying Jesus, then we might be exactly the kind of people that he would tell this story to. We might be going, well, who who really is our neighbor? Whose suffering am I responsible for? Who should I pay attention to and, and intervene about? Jesus says, I'm not so concerned about who you regard as your neighbor. I'm more concerned that you be a neighbor to those in need around you.
think the point, I hope the, the point is clear in terms of where we stand within the church broadly in America, certainly as a, as a society. And there's legitimate questions to ask and discussions to have about where boundaries are drawn, who the, the church is responsible chiefly for the suffering within its own family, right? Paul says in Galatians 6.10, do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I recognize that the church of Jesus Christ cannot be the answer to all social ills that ever exist. I recognize that there are boundaries to be drawn and there are legitimate questions and conversations to have about uh, the shape that these efforts take. But the heart of a Jesus follower, the heart of the people of God ought to be, where is there a need that I can meet? And how can I use my life, my resources, my time, my skills to meet that need? So I think this calls us not to be blind to the suffering of people around us. I was years ago, I went to uh, a conference in Louisville, and uh, <clears throat> as I was headed back from the conference, wearing a t-shirt uh, that said TGC, the Gospel Coalition, which is a, a group that provides teaching and resources and things for the church, and a man in the airport, uh, as we were waiting to get on the plane, uh, sort of called out to me and said, TGC, huh? I'm not a big fan of them just decided to sort of let me know his opinion about the Gospel Coalition uh, as I was wearing their shirt. And so I engaged him in a conversation, asked him what, what it was that he had a problem with, and the problems that he had with TGC were mostly having to do with this issue of, of racism and racial justice. He believes that the Gospel Coalition spends much too much energy on, uh, on these issues of race and racism where it really doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. And in fact, the Gospel Coalition had a hand in promoting a, a conference uh, recently that was, uh, that was uh, in sort of honor of Martin Luther King Jr. on the 50th anniversary of his death. And, uh, and so he began to tell me all about why he thought the Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't a man that should be honored and whose memory shouldn't be revered the way that they were. And so he had all of these, uh, these problems uh, about Christians, about the church addressing the issues of race and racism in, in our society. And I tried to push back a little bit, gently, uh, and ask him some questions. Surely you, you recognize that there are deep wounds and, and long-standing hurts that have been caused by uh, the actions of, of those who are in sort of positions of power and authority in, in the nation. And he pushed back on that too and said, why should I feel guilty about something that my ancestors did. I wasn't there for it. It wasn't my idea. I didn't have anything to do with slavery. Right? I didn't have anything to do with Jim Crow. It's not my problem. I shouldn't feel bad about that. And you know what I hear in that? Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? I was disappointed by that exchange. But I found it enlightening and helpful in some ways to think about these issues and to look at my own heart. How often have I been guilty of brushing aside the suffering of people around me because I can conclude not my neighbor, not my problem. 
Let me point you to the good news in the midst of this story. Christ himself exemplifies the heart of this parable in real life. His love for his neighbors, even those who despised and rejected him, is so great that he would lay down his life for their salvation. While we lay broken and bleeding in a ditch beside the road, Jesus did everything necessary to bandage our wounds. By his stripes you are healed. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our failure to love our neighbor has been forgiven and cleansed because he did not fail to love us. Our failure to be a neighbor to the suffering souls around us no longer stands as condemnation against us because he did not fail to be a neighbor to us. This is the Jesus that we worship. This is the Jesus that we follow. This is the gospel that we are entrusted to carry and to proclaim and in light of which we live our lives. Do you know this Jesus? Have you trusted him? Turn to him in faith. Repent of your sins. Trust in his life and death and resurrection for your salvation and you will be saved. And friends, let's carry that love that Jesus has now planted in our hearts to those around us. Let's not worry about whether or not the hurting people in our midst are our neighbors. Let's make sure that we are being neighbors to those in need. Let me pray.